going to take a look today at Luke chapter 5. We're going to deal with uh, much more of the chapter than I'm going to read right now, but uh, this is kind of where we're headed with this, this morning's message. Before we read that, uh, would you pray with me? God, as always, as we open this, uh, this ancient book that we call your book, we, we thank you for that opportunity and pray that you will open our hearts and minds to whatever you might want to say uh, today. In Jesus' name, amen. So Luke chapter 5, beginning at verse 33. Remind me to buy a large print Bible. (laughs) Anyway, they said to him, this is the Pharisees and the scribes, they're the they. They said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, And so do the disciples of the Pharisees, in other words, so do ours, but yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered, can you make uh, the friends of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them in these days they will fast. He told them this parable. No one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch on an old one. If they do, they will have torn the new garment, and the patch from the new will not match the old. And people do not pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the new wine will burst the skins, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, New wine must be poured into new wineskins. And some of you, after drinking old wine, wants the new. No, that's important. I missed it. And none of you, after drinking old wine, wants the new. For you say, the old is better. I don't know if you've noticed, uh, at least it seems uh, this way to me, that wherever Jesus went, controversy and uh, confrontation seemed to follow. Some would have us think of Jesus as meek and mild, and depending on your definition of those words, I can let them stand, but That is certainly not a full picture of the Jesus whose story I read on the pages of the New Testament. Meek and mild, not for me the best choice of words. Tender, yet tough, yes. Compassionate, yet confrontational, yes. That's the Jesus I see in Luke chapter 5. I'd like to rewind this chapter back to verse 12. There we see a tender, compassionate Jesus healing a man covered with that dread disease of leprosy. Now, those witnesses to this particular encounter would have been particularly struck 
by the method of healing Jesus used in that, in that instance. While it was his usual method merely to speak a word of healing, get up and walk. This time, says Luke, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. Jesus touched the man whom no one else dared to touch for fear they might themselves catch the dread disease. Jesus touched a man whom the religious authorities had declared untouchable and unclean, a man who had been ostracized and banned from living in his own community, a man locked out of cities, locked out of villages, and locked out of homes. Jesus touched a man whose heart and soul must have desperately yearned for another's human touch. Tender and compassionate, yes. But we see also in this chapter that Jesus was tough and confrontational. Verses 17 through 26 tell of an episode that shook the very foundations of tradition and put Jesus directly at odds with the orthodox religious establishment of his day. Some of you will remember the story, maybe. Four men carry their paralytic friend to a home where Jesus is teaching. When they arrive, they discover to their dismay that a crowd of the curious has filled the home, spilled out into the courtyard around in such a manner that these desperate men cannot get through. They cannot get their hurting friend to Jesus for healing. Refusing to be denied their destination, determined to accomplish the goal for which they've come, these four men climb to the roof of the home carrying their friend up the ladder with them. And then they cut a hole in the roof and lower the paralytic to the floor, placing him at the very feet of Jesus. Impressed with the faith of his four friends, Jesus says to the paralytic, get up and walk. No. Here's what Jesus says. Friend, your sins are forgiven. Now it's confrontation time. Because with the words, friend, your sins are forgiven, Jesus was asking for trouble. Jesus spoke those words in a situation where he was surrounded by traditional Orthodox believers, by the Pharisees and teachers of the law, by those who believed that God and God alone had the right to forgive sins. When Jesus spoke those words, it seemed he was making a clear claim, that he was claiming to be God in the flesh. God become human. It was a claim Jesus knew would get him into trouble. He knew it when he said it. A claim he knew would not please the Orthodox religious establishment. A claim he knew could make them his enemies, not that they weren't already. A claim he knew could get him killed. But make the claim... 
He did, without hesitation, without apology, without concern for the consequences, and I think with intention. Tender and compassionate with the paralytic in his suffering. Tough and confrontational with those who would keep him from fulfilling the mission for which he had been sent. But Jesus wasn't finished. Next, we see him associating with the undesirables of his day. With outcasts, rejects, sinners. When the Pharisees and scribes challenge his choice of friends, Jesus doesn't back down. He says to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Friends, when Jesus healed the leper, he performed a miracle on the wrong person. And he did it in the wrong way. When he announced the paralytic forgiven, from the viewpoint of the Orthodox, this incredible Lord of ours was preaching the wrong theology. And when he associated with outcasts and sinners, Jesus was keeping company with the wrong people. Wrong person, healed in the wrong way, wrong theology, wrong friends. Wrong, 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 wrong. Yet all acts of sheer compassion. So it is that we come to the scripture reading of this morning. And Jesus is still getting it wrong. Apparently this time, Jesus and his friends are, well, they're having too much fun in their religion. This time, their attitude is wrong. It's an attitude of joy and celebration, and their joy, it seems, is offensive to the pious Pharisees and Orthodox teachers of the law. So they say to Jesus, the disciples of John the Baptist often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, our disciples, but your disciples go on eating and drinking. It must have been on a fast day when this incident took place. Here's the interesting thing. The law of Moses actually prescribed only one fast day a year. One. The Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, which faithful Jews observe to this day. But in order to show how religious they were, many Pharisees of Jesus' time had designated many regular fast days. Every Monday and every Thursday was a fast day. The super-religious would cover their faces with ashes, suck in their cheeks so as to look pale and gaunt, dress in burlap, and walk the streets. They wanted other folks to look at them. And to say, my, just how dedicated to God they are. And they hoped, no doubt, to attract God's attention as well. 
Jesus' response to their question is penetrating and it's confrontational once again. He says, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? It's party time with the bridegroom. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days they will fast. He's talking about himself. Jesus is saying, you're the ones who don't get it. You're the ones who have misunderstood God. You're the ones who don't have any idea what true worship really is. You think it's a funeral, but it's a festival. It's a wedding, says Jesus. It's a wedding. And I'm the bridegroom. And in the presence of the bridegroom, you wouldn't fast. You'd feast. You wouldn't wear sackcloth and ashes. You'd wear your best robes. You wouldn't walk around with solemn and somber faces. You'd celebrate and rejoice. Let's stop a minute and try to take Take this in as the big picture, just so we don't get lost in the weeds, all right? So from the stories of Jesus and his outcast friends, we discover this important truth. Look at it. The church of Jesus Christ is a place for sinners who long to be saints, not a place for saints who have long forgotten they are sinners. The church of Jesus Christ is a place for sinners who long to be saints. It's not a place for saints who have long forgotten they are sinners. From this morning's scripture reading, we discover another such thought. The church is a place for celebration and joy, not a place for gloom and doom and somber faces. Folks, when Jesus comes to church on Sunday... I'd suggest he wants to party with his people. He wants to celebrate God's mercy and love and praise God in heaven who is the source of all things good. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. That doesn't mean the people of Jesus stop confronting the evil in our world. It doesn't mean the people of Jesus bury their heads in the sand and ignore the important social and justice issues of our time. It simply means that even when we deal with controversy and confrontation, we do so in the context of love and joy, acceptance and grace, hope and peace. The church is a place for sinners who long to be saints, not a place for saints who have long forgotten they are sinners. The church is a place for celebration and joy, not a place for gloom and doom and somber faces. And then how about this third thought? The church of Jesus Christ is a place where old ways are constantly giving ground to new ways. Where God is understood to be dynamic and fluid, never himself changing, yet ever changing God's people and God's church in order to accomplish God's purposes and fulfill God's mission in a broken world. 
Now that was a lot. So let's look at it again. The church of Jesus Christ is a place where old ways are constantly giving ground to new ways. Where God is understood to be dynamic and fluid, never himself changing, yet ever changing God's people and God's church in order to accomplish God's purpose as in fulfill God's mission in a broken world. And that's what the parables of the new and old garments, the parable of the old and new wineskins are all about. Jesus is talking about the old needing to give way to the new. In the context of his own times, Jesus was talking about the old forms and the old traditions of Judaism needing to give way to the new forms and the new traditions of the new covenant and the new construct that Jesus was himself bringing into the world what Jesus called the kingdom of God. So Jesus says, no one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch an old one. They do, they will have torn the new garment, ruining it. And the patch from the new will not match the old. And Jesus says, people do not pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the new wine will burst the skins. The wine will run out. The wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskin. Here's the deal. In Jesus' day, they did not have bottles for wine or big sturdy barrels Rather, they used, hopefully clean, sewed-up animal skins as wine containers. Old, already-used wine skins were brittle and inflexible. If, if used for new wine, and as the fermentation process took place, the old skin would burst like a balloon and the precious new wine would spill out. New wine demanded fresh new wine skins, Skins that were pliable and flexible and would easily expand. So here's the key question of the morning. I think pretty much the question every time we confront this ancient text of ours. So what does all this stuff 2,000 years ago in the time of Jesus have to do with us today? Well, the first thing we must recognize is that God... God's always the God of the new and the fresh. God is the God of change, the God of transformation and reformation. It's throughout the whole story of this book. On the one hand, we speak of God as the ancient of days, the one who is from everlasting to everlasting. And we speak of Jesus as the same, yesterday, today, and forever. But on the other hand, we recognize that the message of God's love and grace is ever new. The story of Jesus is always new and fresh to every generation. And the Spirit of God is continually expanding our awareness and our understanding of the Word, the presence, and the work of God in our world. The Spirit lives. The Spirit moves. 
the Spirit still speaks. Jesus said, it is the Spirit who will guide you, my people, into all truth. Theologian Howard Snyder wrote this, quoted many years ago, flat out prophetic, or maybe just constantly true. He said this, Every age knows the temptation to forget that the gospel is ever new. We try to contain the new wine of the gospel in old wineskins. Outmoded traditions, obsolete philosophies, creaking institutions, old habits, old forms, old ideas. But with time, the old wineskins begin to bind the gospel. Then they must burst. And the power of the gospel pours forth once more. Many times this has happened in the history of the church, he says. Human nature wants to conserve, wants to protect. But the divine nature is to renew and to risk. It seems almost a law that things initially created to aid the gospel eventually become obstacles, become old wineskins. Then God has to destroy or abandon them so that the gospel wine can renew our world once again. The gospel, the story of Jesus, is new in our day. It is still the power of God. It is still bursting old wineskins and flowing forth into the world. End quote. Friends, the wine of the gospel is ever new, always fermenting by the presence of the Holy Spirit. But the wineskins, the wineskins must constantly be renewed, including the wineskins of our minds and our hearts. Just as change is constant in our knowledge and in our discovery and in our experience, so too will change be a constant in the life of faith, in the life of spirituality, in the life of the church as we seek to make an impact for Christ in an ever-changing world. That is the next thing this stuff from 2,000 years ago has to say to us. New wineskins are not optional. Jesus didn't suggest they were optional. They are absolutely essential. The old ways must constantly be renewed, reformed, and transformed. Did you notice how Jesus ended this parable? And none of you after drinking old wine, wants the new, for he says, the old is better. What's that about? Puzzling to me. There's some mystery here. Let's try this. Almost sounds like Jesus is contradicting himself, but not so. Rather, I think Jesus may be reminding his listeners that just as new wine takes time to mature, so it is with new ways and new forms and even new ideas, they need to mature. So be a bit patient with him. 
Or perhaps Jesus is talking about the reluctance of some people to change, to accept new ways and new forms and new ideas because the old forms and the old ways and the old ideas, they're just so comfortable, so familiar. The old is better. I'm used to it. Don't rock the boat. Friends, if the church, including this church, is going to make a difference for Christ and move forward in this 21st century. We have to be open to new ways of being the church, new ways of expressing and sharing the faith, new ways of telling the old, old story, new ways of reaching and including people with the gospel. And that may mean choosing to let go of some old ways. And let's face it, letting go of old ways is almost always difficult and painful. I think Mark Twain was right on target when he said that the only person who likes change is a baby with a dirty diaper. Change. Letting go of old ways should never be done in a cavalier or insensitive manner. It takes time for new wine to mature. Letting go of some old ways yet is an absolute must for every generation of God's people. If that generation is going to move forward in faith and towards the future, that generation, every generation, must listen for the voice of the Spirit, speaking fresh and new again as they move into the future. The future where God already is. The future that God is already shaping. The future to which God is always calling us. Embracing the new, it's not optional, it's essential. Yet hear this as well. Embracing the new does not mean throwing out everything that is old just because it's old. Please, I'd like to hang around a little while longer. When those of us living in the present with an eye to the future look upon the past and all tradition with disdain or contempt, we're not displaying wisdom or an adventuresome risk-taking spirit, so much as we are displaying the same kind of arrogance and the same kind of stubborn, myopic self-absorption that we see in those who resist change and cling tenaciously to the old ways and the old forms and the old ideas as if they can never be improved upon. On another occasion, Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, the old ways. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them, to complete them, to build upon them. Jesus understood that when the wise embraced the new and moved forward in faith towards the future, the future where God already is, the future that God is already shaping, the future to which God is always calling us, when the wise embrace the new, they do so 
while still firmly rooted in the past. The past where God was also present. The past that was also shaped by God. The past where God was also calling his people to a new tomorrow. So, as Aaron says to you from time to time, uh, next comes landing the plane, and sometimes landing the plane is difficult. I'd like to try something with you today. might not work because I just thought of it this morning, and so, you know, I haven't had a lot of time to think about it, but I've been thinking about this thing with the past. You know, the explorers of old who sailed the seven seas had anchors on their on their ships and when they put the anchor down it didn't move the ship was still so we can't put an anchor down in the past the ships of life can't move forward that was easy for me to come up with. But the next one, I hope it works for all, all it will. I'll, who, who remembers Star Trek? Captain Kirk, McCoy, Spock, Scotty. Remember them all? Remember how it opened up? It was with that, first was that phrase of going where no person has gone before, something like that. I got that about right. Then you remember what came next in every episode? Captain's log. Day or year or whatever. Captain's log. Because it was Captain Kirk speaking as if he was speaking the captain's log. Recording it. Remember that? That's how the story would begin. I think that's kind of how we ought to see the past. What was that captain's log about? It was, for one thing, to preserve the story, to remember the story, so that the stories could be retold. But it was also to give those who might come after some guidance. Not to hold them back because their adventure was a new adventure, but the old stories, the, the obstacles they encountered, how they overcome them. All of that is what the captain's log was about, I think. It was about giving some clues and some wisdom to the future. Not to anchor the future to the past, because then there's no future. Right? But to guide, to give wisdom. And that ought to be enough. That ought to satisfy the past. And us, as we launch, as we live in the present and launch into the future. Let's pray together.